This program features the author, essayist, and anarchist Edward Abbey, reading from three of his works, The Journey Home, Down the River, and Abbey's Road. Edward Abbey died in 1989 at the age of 62. He was noted for his advocacy of environmental issues and criticism of public land policies. His novel, The Monkey Wrench Gang, has been cited as an inspiration by environmentalists and groups defending nature. Thanks to Back of Beyond Books in Moab, Utah, for these recordings. We used to live, my wife and I, in a glassy cabin on a mountain peak surrounded by a national forest. Our job was to watch. Watch what? Well, watch just about everything. To us, it seemed like the center of the world. When clouds gathered, we watched for lightning where it struck. After the lightning, we'd watch for smoke in the trees, and when and if it appeared a few hours later or a couple of days later, we'd locate the smoke with our precision firefinder and radio the news to forest headquarters. The report generally went like this. Phoenix, this is Aztec Peak, 1073. 1073 is a forest radio code for fire. Go ahead, Aztec. We've got a little smoke for you at 842 degrees and 30 minutes southwest side of Tubar Ridge. It's a single snag, blue-gray smoke, small volume, intermittent puffs, light wind from the west, heavy fuel but not spreading. 10-4 Aztec, let us know if it grows. While fire crews were dispatched to find and put out the fire, my wife and I returned to our job of watching. We watched the clouds again, and the weather, and approaching and departing storms. We watched the sun go down behind four peaks in the Superstition Mountains, that sundown legend retold and recurring every evening, day after day after day. We saw the planet Venus, bright as radium, floating close to the shoulder of the new moon. We watched the stars and meteor showers, and the snaky ripple of cloud-to-cloud lightning coursing across the sky at night. We watched the birds. One day, a little nuthatch flew into our cabin through an open window, banged its silly head against the closed window opposite, and dropped to the floor. I picked up the tiny bird, holding it in my palm. I could feel the beating of its furious heart. I set it down on the catwalk outside in the sunlight. After a while, the nuthatch came to, shook its head, lofted its wings, and fluttered off. What can you think of a bird that crashes into glass and creeps headfirst down the trunk of a pine? The forest spread below us in summer in a dozen different hues of green, from olive drab to aquamarine. There were yellow pine and pinion pine, blue spruce and Engelmann spruce, white fir and Douglas fir, quaking aspen, New Mexico locust, alligator juniper, and four kinds of oak. Along the rim rock of the escarpment, where warm air rose from the canyons beneath, grew manzanita, agave, sotol, and several species of cactus, prickly pear, pincushion, fishhook. Far down in the canyons, where water flowed, though not always on the surface, we could see sycamore, alder, box elder, cottonwood, walnut, hackberry, wild cherry, and wild grape, and a hundred other kinds of tree, shrub, and vine, 
that I would probably never learn to identify by name. The naming of things is a useful mnemonic device, enabling us to distinguish and utilize and remember what otherwise might remain an undifferentiated sensory blur. But I don't think names tell us much of character, essence, or meaning. Einstein thought that the most mysterious aspect of the universe, if it is indeed a universe, not a pluriverse, is what he called its rationality. Being primarily a mathematician and only secondarily a violinist, Einstein saw the world as rational because so many of its properties and so much of its behavior can be described through mathematical formulas. The atomic bomb and Hiroshima made a convincing argument for his point of view, as does the ignition of juniper twigs by the agency of friction into heat, smoke, and flame. Mass is transformed into energy emitting light, employing fire lookouts. Even so, I find something narrow and too specialized in Einstein's summary of the situation. The specialist's viewpoint may go deep, but it cannot go all the way through. How could it if the world, though finite, is unbounded? Nor does its practical utility, nuclear bombs, make up for its lack of breadth. All special theories suffer from this defect. The lizard sunning itself on a stone would no doubt tell us that time, space, sun, and earth exist to serve the lizard's interests. The lizard, too, must see the world as reducible to a rational formula. Relative to the context, the lizard's metaphysical system seems as complete as Einstein's. But to me, the most mysterious thing about the universe is not its rationality, but the fact that it exists, and the same mystery attaches to everything within it. The world is permeated through and through by mystery by the incomprehensible, by creatures like you and me and Einstein and the lizards. Modern science and technology have given us the engineering techniques to measure, analyze, and take apart the immediate neighborhood, including the neighbors. But this knowledge adds not much to our understanding of things. Knowledge is power, said Francis Bacon, great-great-grandfather of the nuclear age. Power, exactly. That's been the point of the game all along. But power does not lead to wisdom, even less to understanding. Sympathy, love, physical contact, touching are better means to so fine an end. Vague talk, I agree. This blather about mystery is probably no more than a confession of intellectual laziness. Let's have no more metaphysical apologetics. Throw metaphysic to the dogs, I say, and watch the birds. I'd rather contemplate the noble turkey vulture soaring on the air, contemplating me, than speculate further on Einstein's theories, astrophysics, or the significance of the latest computer printouts from Kitt Peak Observatory and NASA. The computer tapers have a word for it. Gigo. Garbage in, garbage out. Output equals input. Numbers in, numbers out, nothing more. Nino, a double negation. 
Anything reduced to numbers in algebra is not very interesting. Useful, of course, for the processing of data, physical relations, human beings, but not interesting. The vultures are interesting. In the morning, they would rise one by one from their communal roost a quarter mile below our lookout and disperse themselves to the four quarters of the firmament. Each patrols its chosen or allocated territory. Rising so high and sailing so far, it soon becomes invisible to human eyes, even when our human eyes are aided by seven by fifty binoculars. But although we cannot always see them, the buzzards keep an eye on one another, as well as on the panorama of life and death below. And when one bird descends for an actual or potential lunch, its mates notice and come from miles away to join the feast. This is the principle of evolutionary success, mutual aid. At evening, near sundown, the vultures would return. Friendly, tolerant, gregarious birds, they like to roost each night on the same dead pine below. One by one, they spiraled downward, weaving transparent figures in the air, while others maintained a holding pattern, sinking slowly, gradually, as if reluctant to leave the heights, toward the lime-spattered branches of the snag. They might even have had nests down in there somewhere, although I could never see one with little buzzard chicks waiting for supper. Try to imagine a baby vulture. Gathered on their favorite dead tree, heads nodding together, the vultures resembled from our vantage point a convocation of bald, politic funeral directors discussing business prospects. Always good. Dependable. The mature birds have red, wrinkled, featherless heads, the heads of the young are a bluish color and also naked. The heads are bald because it's neater, safer, more sanitary, given the line of work. If you made your living by thrusting your beak and eyes and neck deep into the rotting entrails, say, of a dead cow, you too would prefer to be bald as a buzzard. Feathers on the head would impede a hasty withdrawal when necessary and might provide lodging for maggots, beetles, worms, and bacteria, best for the trade to keep sleek and tidy. I respect vultures myself, even like them, I guess, in a way, and fully expect some day to join them, internally at least. One should plan one's reincarnation with care. I like especially the idea of floating among the clouds all day, seldom stirring a feather, Meditating on whatever it is that vultures meditate about, it looks like a good life from down here. We had some golden eagles in the area, too, but seldom got a look at them. Uncommon and elitist birds, aloof as warlords, they generally hang out as far as possible from human habitat. Who could blame them? Sheepmen and others shoot them on sight, on general principles— our hero, Ernest Hemingway, could not resist the temptation to bag an eagle now and then, though he hated himself afterward. Not an easy job to be, or to have been, Ernest Hemingway. Eleanor Wiley advised emulation. Avoid the reeking herd, shun the polluted flock, 
I live like that stoic bird, the eagle of the rock. But she spent most of her time in New York City. Can't blame her either. Every bird in its proper place. The red-tailed hawk is a handsome character. I enjoyed watching the local hunter come planing through the pass between our mountaintop and the adjoining peak, there to catch the wind and hover in place for a while, head twitching back and forth as it scans the forest below. When he or she spots something live and edible, down she goes at an angle of forty-five degrees, feet first, talons extended, wings uplifted, feathers all a-flutter, looking like a Victorian lady in skirts and ruffled pantaloons jumping off a bridge. The hawk disappears into the woods. I watch, binoculars ready. She rises seconds later from the trees with something wriggling, alive, in her right foot. A field mouse. The hawk sails high in the air. The mouse is fighting, bites the hawk on the shank. I can see these details without difficulty. And the startled red tail drops her prey. The mouse falls down and away, also at an angle of forty-five degrees, carried eastward by the wind. The hawk stoops, swoops, and recaptures the mouse a hundred feet above the treetops, carries it to the broken-off top of a pine, perches there, still holding the struggling mouse in her claws, and makes one quick stab of beak to the mouse's head. I see a spurt of red. The mouse is still. The hawk gulps down her lunch raw and whole in one piece, as an owl does. Later, after craw and gizzard have done their work, the hawk will regurgitate a tiny ball of fur and toenails. We watch the storms of late afternoon, sun descending in a welter of brawling purple clouds. Spokes of gold wheel across the sky. Jags and jets of lightning flicker from cloud to cloud and from cloud to earth. Mighty kettle drums thunder in the distance. My wind gauge reads thirty-five knots. The trees sway, the wind booms through the forest. Watching the vultures gather below, I noticed a disturbance. A small gray-backed falcon was diving among the vultures, harrying the laggards. It was a peregrine falcon, rare but not extinct. Watching through the glasses, I saw one vulture actually flapping its wings to escape the falcon. Unusual exertion for a vulture. The falcon strikes, their bodies collide in what appears to me as a glancing blow. A few vulture feathers float off in the wind. The vulture flaps into the shelter of the trees, swearing quietly apparently unharmed. Tiring of this sport, the falcon skims upward in a sweeping arc, shooting through the circling vultures, winging higher and higher into the sky, and stops at the apex of its parabola to hover there, still as a star, facing the wind, the lightning, the advancing storm. The falcon hangs in space for second after second, motionless, as if suspended on a thread, its wings, body, and spirit in perfect equilibrium with the streaming torrents of the air. Give your heart to the hawks, urged Robinson Jeffers. Okay, I thought, I'll do that, for this one splendid moment.
until the Vulcan shears off on the wind and vanishes in storm and light. Appealing as I find the idea of reincarnation, I must confess that it has a flaw. To wit, there is not a shred of evidence suggesting it might be true. The idea has nothing going for it but desire, the restless aspiration of the human mind. But when was aspiration ever intimidated by fact? Given a choice, I plan to be a long-winged, fan-tailed bird next time around. Which one? Vulture, eagle, hawk, falcon, crane, heron, wood ibis? Well, I believe I was a wood ibis once, back in the good old days of the Pleistocene epoch. And from what I already know of passion, violence, the intensity of the blood, I think I'll pass on eagle, hawk, or falcon this time. For a lifetime or two, or maybe three, I think I'll settle for the sedate career, serene and soaring, of the humble turkey buzzard. And if any falcon comes around making trouble, I'll spit in his eye, or hers, and contemplate this world we love from a silent and considerable height. Just across the lacquered Hudson River from Manhattan, we had all the wilderness we needed. There was the waterfront with its decaying piers and abandoned warehouses, the jungle of bars along River Street and Hudson Street, the houseboats, the old ferry slips, the mildew green cathedral of the Erie Lackawanna Railway Terminal. That was back in 1964-65. Then came urban renewal, which ruined everything left lovable in Hoboken, New Jersey. What else was there? I loved the fens, those tawny marshes full of water birds, mosquitoes, muskrats, and opossums that intervened among the black basaltic rocks between Jersey City and Newark, and somewhere back of Union City on the way to gay, exotic, sausage-packing, garbage-rich Secaucus. I loved also, and finally and absolutely, as a writer must love any vision of eschatological ultimates, the view by twilight from the Pulaski Skyway, stop for emergency repairs only, of the seventh circle of hell, those melancholy chemical plants, ancient as acid, sick as cyanide, rising beyond the cattails and tules the gleam of oily waters in the refinery's red glare, the desolation of the endless, incomprehensible, uninhabitable, but inhabited slums of Harrison, Newark, Elizabeth, the haunting and sinister odors on the wind, rust and iron and sunflowers in the tangled tracks, the great grimy sunsets beyond the saturated sky. It will all be made some day a national park of the mind, a rigid celebration of industrialism's finest frenzy. We tried north, too, up once into the Catskills, 
once again to the fringe of the Adirondacks. All I saw were private property, keep out, this means you, signs. I live in a different country now. Those days of longing, that experiment in exile, are all past. The far-ranging cat returns at last to his natural native habitat. But what wilderness there was in those bitter days I learned to treasure. Foggy nights in greasy Hoboken alleyways kept my soul alert, healthy and aggressive, on edge with delight. The other kind of wilderness is also useful. I mean now the hardwood forests of Upper Appalachia, the overrated mountains of Colorado, the burnt Sienna hills of South Dakota, the raw umber of Kansas, the mysterious swamps of Arkansas, the porphyritic mountains of purple Arizona, the mystic desert of my own four-cornered country, this and 347 other good, clean, dangerous places I can name. Science is not sufficient. Ecology is a word I first read in H.G. Wells twenty years ago, and I still don't know what it means, or seriously much care. Nor am I primarily concerned with nature as a living museum, the preservation of spontaneous plants and wild animals. The wildest animal I know is you, gentle reader, with this helpless book clutched in your claws. No, there are better reasons for keeping the wild wild, the wilderness open, the trees up and the rivers free, and the canyons uncluttered with dams. We need wilderness because we are wild animals. Every man needs a place where he can go to go crazy in peace. Every Boy Scout troop deserves a forest to get lost, miserable, and starving in. Even the maddest murderer of the sweetest wife should get a chance for a run to the sanctuary of the hills, if only for the sport of it, for the terror, freedom, and delirium, because we need brutality and raw adventure, because men and women first learn to love in, under, and all around trees, because we need for every pair of feet and legs about ten leagues of naked nature, crags to leap from, mountains to measure by, deserts to finally die in when the heart fails. The prisoners in Solzhenitsyn's labor camps looked out on the vast Siberian forests. Within those shadowy depths lay the hope of escape, of refuge, of survival, of hope itself. But guns and barbed wire blocked the way. The citizens of our American cities enjoy a high relative degree of political, intellectual, and economic liberty. But if the entire nation is urbanized, industrialized, mechanized, and administered, then our liberties continue only at the sufferance of the technological mega-machine that functions both as servant and master. And our freedoms depend on the pleasure of the privileged few who sit at the control consoles of that machine. What makes life in our cities at once still tolerable, exciting, and stimulating is the existence of an alternative option, whether exercised or not, whether even appreciated or not, of a radically different mode of being out there, in the forests, on the lakes and rivers, in the deserts, up in the mountains. Who needs wilderness? Civilization needs wilderness. The idea of wilderness preservation is one of the fruits of civilization. Like Bach's music, 
Tolstoy's novels, scientific medicine, Novocaine, space travel, free love, the double martini, the secret ballot, the private home and private property, the public park and public property, freedom of travel, the bill of rights, peppermint toothpaste, beaches for nude bathing, the right to own and bear arms, the right not to own and bear arms, and a thousand other good things one could name, some of them trivial, most of them essential, all of them vital to that great, bubbling, disorderly, anarchic, unmanageable diversity of opinion, expression, and ways of living, which free men and women love, which is their breath of life, and which the authoritarians of church and state and war, and sometimes even art, despise and always have despised and feared. A permissive society? What else? I love America because it is a confused, chaotic mess, and I hope we can keep it this way for at least another thousand years. The permissive society is the free society, the open society. Who gave us permission to live this way? Nobody did. We did. And that's the way it should be, only more so. The best cure for the ills of democracy is more democracy. The boundary around a wilderness area may well be an artificial, self-imposed, sophisticated construction. But once inside that line, you discover the artificiality beginning to drop away. And the deeper you go, the longer you stay, the more interesting things get, sometimes fatally interesting. And that, too, is what we want. Wilderness is and should be a place where, as in Central Park, New York City, you have a fair chance of being mugged and buggered by a shaggy fellow in a fur coat, one of Pooh Bear's big brothers. To be alive is to take risks. To be always safe and secure is death. Enough of these banalities, no less true anyhow, which most of us embrace. But before getting into the practical applications of this theme, I want to revive one more argument for the preservation of wilderness, one seldom heard, but always present, in my own mind at least, and that is the political argument. Democracy has always been a rare and fragile institution in human history. Never was it more in danger than now, in the dying decades of this most dangerous of centuries. Within the past few years alone, we have seen two more relatively open societies succumb to dictatorship and police rule, Chile and India. In all of Asia, there's not a single free country except Israel, which, as the Arabs say, is really a transplanted piece of Europe. In Africa, obviously going the way of Latin America, there are none. Half of Europe stagnates under one-man or one-party domination. Only Western Europe and Britain, Australia and New Zealand, perhaps Japan, and North America can still be called more or less free, open, democratic societies. As I see it, our own nation is not free from the danger of dictatorship, and I refer to internal as well as external threats to our liberties. As social conflict tends to become more severe in this country, and it will, unless we strive for social justice, there will inevitably be a tendency on the part of the authoritarian element, always present in our history, to suppress individual freedoms to utilize the refined techniques of police surveillance, not excluding torture, of course, in order to preserve 
not wilderness, but the status quo, the privileged positions of those who now so largely control the economic and governmental institutions of the United States. If this fantasy should become reality, and fantasies becoming realities are the story of the 20th century, then some of us may need what little wilderness remains as a place of refuge, as a hideout, as a base from which to carry on guerrilla warfare against the totalitarianism of my nightmares. I hope it does not happen. I believe we will prevent it from happening. But if it should, then I, for one, intend to light out at once for the nearest national forest, where I've been hiding cases of peanut butter, homebrew, ammunition, and sea rations for the last ten years. I haven't the slightest doubt that the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, and the local cops have dossiers on me a yard thick. If they didn't, I'd be insulted. Could I survive in the wilderness? I don't know. But I do know I could never survive in prison. Could we, as a people, survive without wilderness? To consider that question, we might look at the history of modern Europe and of other places. As the Europeans filled up their small continent, the more lively among them spread out over the entire planet, seeking fortune, empire, a new world, a new chance, but seeking most of all, I believe, for adventure, for the opportunity of self-testing. Those nations that were confined by geography, bottled up, tended to find their outlet for surplus energy through war on their neighbors. The Germans provide the best example of this thesis. Nations with plenty of room for expansion, such as the Russians, tended to be less aggressive toward their neighbors. In Asia, we can see the same human necessities at work in somewhat different form. Japan might be likened to Germany, a small nation with a large, ever-growing, vigorous, and intelligent population. Confined by the sea, their open spaces long ago occupied and domesticated, the Japanese, like the Germans, turned to war upon their neighbors, particularly China, Korea, Oriental Russia. And when that was not enough to fully engage their surplus energies, they became an oceanic power, which soon brought them into conflict with two other oceanic powers, Britain and the United States. Defeated in war, the Japanese turned their undefeated energies into industry and commerce, becoming a world power through trade. But that kind of adventure is satisfactory part of the population. And when the newly prosperous Japanese middle class becomes bored with tourism, we shall probably see some kind of civil war or revolution in Japan, perhaps within the next twenty years. Something of that sort may be said to have already happened in China. Powerless to wage war upon their neighbors, the Chinese waged war upon themselves, class against class, and resulted a triumphant revolution and the construction of a human society that may well become, unfortunately, the working model for all. I mean, the thoroughly organized society where all individual freedom is submerged to the needs of the social organism. The Global Village and the Technological Termitorium. More nightmares. I do not believe that human beings would or could long tolerate such a world. The human animal is almost infinitely adaptable, 
but there must be limits to our adaptability, limits beyond which, if we can survive them at all, we would survive only by sacrificing those qualities that distinguish the human from that possible cousin of the future, the two-legged, flesh-skinned robot, his head, her head, its head, wired by telepathic radio to a universal central control system. One more example. What happened to India when its space was filled, its wilderness destroyed? Something curiously different from events in Europe, China, or Japan. Unable to expand outward in physical space, unable or unwilling so far to seek solutions through civil war and revolution, the genius of India, its most subtle and sensitive minds, sought escape from unbearable reality by rocket flights of thought into the inner space of the soul, into a mysticism so deep and profound that a whole nation, a whole people, have been paralyzed for a thousand years by awe and adoration. Now we see something similar happening in our own country. A tiny minority, the technological elite, blast off for the moon, continuing the traditional European drive for the conquest of physical space. But a far greater number, lacking the privileges and luck and abilities of the Glens and the Armstrongs and their comrades, have attempted to imitate the way of India. When reality becomes intolerable, when the fantasies of nightmare become everyday experience, then deny that reality, obliterate it, and escape, escape, escape through drugs, through trance and enchantment, through magic and madness, or through study and discipline. By whatever means, in some cases by any means, escape this crazy, unbearable, absurd playpen of the senses, this gross 3D, grade B, X-rated porno flick thrust upon us by CBS News, Time, Newsweek, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Sierra Club, Bulletin, seeking refuge in a nicer universe just next door, around some corner of the mind and nervous system, deep in the coolest cells of the brain. If all is illusion, then nothing matters, or matters much. And if nothing matters, then peace of a sort is possible. Striving becomes foolish. And we can finally relax, at last, into that bliss which passeth understanding, content as pigs in a warm manure pile, until the man comes with the knife to carry the analogy to its conclusion, until pig sticking time rolls around again and the fires are lit under the scalding tubs. You begin to see the outline of my obsessions. Every train of thought seems to lead to some concentration camp of nightmare. But I believe there are alternatives to the world of nightmare. I believe that there are better ways to live than the traditional European-American drive for power, conquest, domination. Better ways than the horrifying busyness of the Japanese. Better ways than the totalitarian communes of the Chinese. Better ways than the passive pipe dreams of Hindu-India, that sickliest of all nations. I believe we can find models for a better way both in the past and the present. Imperfect models, to be sure, each with its grievous faults, but better all the same than most of what passes for necessity in the modern world. 
I allude to the independent city-states of classical Greece, to the free cities of medieval Europe, to the small towns of 18th and 19th century America, to the tribal life of the American Plains Indians, to the ancient Chinese villages recalled by Lao Tzu in his book The Way. I believe it is possible to find and live a balanced way of life somewhere halfway between all-out industrialism on the one hand and a make-believe pastoral idol on the other. I believe it possible to live an intelligent life in our cities, if we make them fit to live in, if we stop this trend toward joining city unto city until half the nation and half the planet become one smog-shrouded, desperate and sweating, insane and explosive urbanized concentration camp. According to my basic thesis, if it's sound, we can avoid the disasters of war, the nightmare of the police state and totalitarianism, the drive to expand and conquer, if we return to this middle way and learn to live for a while, say at least a thousand years or so, just for the hell of it, just for the fun of it, in some sort of steady state economy, some sort of free, democratic, wide-open society. As we return to a happier equilibrium between industrialism and a rural agrarian way of life, we will, of course, also encourage a gradual reduction of the human population of these states to something closer to the optimum, perhaps half the present number. This would be accomplished by humane social policies, naturally, by economic and taxation incentives encouraging birth control, the single-child family, the unmarried state, the community family. Much preferable to war, revolution, nuclear poisoning, and so forth, as population control devices. What has all this fantasizing to do with wilderness and freedom? We can have wilderness without freedom. We can have wilderness without human life at all. But we cannot have freedom without wilderness. We cannot have freedom without leagues of open space beyond the cities, where boys and girls, men and women, can live at least part of their lives under no control but their own desires and abilities, free from any and all direct administration by their fellow men. A world without wilderness is a cage, as Dave Brower says. I see the preservation of wilderness as one sector of the front in the war against the encroaching industrial state. Every square mile of range and desert saved from the strip miners, every river saved from the dam builders, every forest saved from the loggers, every swamp saved from the land speculators, means another square mile saved for the play of human freedom. All this may seem utopian, impossibly idealistic, no matter. There comes a point at every crisis in human affairs when the ideal must become the real, or nothing. It is my contention that if we wish to save what is good in our lives, and give our children a taste of a good life, we must bring a halt to the ever-expanding economy and put the growth maniacs under medical care. Let me tell you a story. A couple of years ago, I had a job. I worked for an outfit called Defenders of Fur Bearers, now known as Defenders of Wildlife. 
I was caretaker and head janitor of a 70,000-acre wildlife refuge in the vicinity of Aravaipa Canyon in southern Arizona. The Huitail Wildlife Preserve, as we called it, was a refuge for mountain lion, javelina, a few black bear, maybe a wolf or two, a herd of white-tailed deer, and me, to name the principal fur bearers. I was walking along Arrow Viper Creek one afternoon when I noticed fresh mountain lion tracks leading ahead of me. Big tracks, the biggest lion tracks I've seen anywhere. Now I've lived most of my life in the southwest, but I'm sorry to admit that I had never seen a mountain lion in the wild. Naturally, I was eager to get a glimpse of this one. It was getting late in the day, the sun already down beyond the canyon wall, so I hurried along, hoping I might catch up to the lion and get one good look at him before I had to turn back and head home. But no matter how fast I walked and then jogged along, I couldn't seem to get any closer. Those big tracks kept leading ahead of me, looking not five minutes old, but always disappearing around the next turn in the canyon. Twilight settled in, visibility getting poor. I realized I'd have to call it quits. I stopped for a while, staring upstream into the gloom of the canyon. I could see the buzzards settling down for the evening in their favorite dead cottonwood. I heard the poor wills and the spotted toads beginning to sing, but of that mountain lion I could neither hear nor see any living trace. I turned around and started home. I'd walked maybe a mile when I thought I heard something odd behind me. I stopped and looked back. Nothing, nothing but the canyon, the running water, the trees, the rocks, the willow thickets. I went on, and soon I heard that noise again, the sound of footsteps. I stopped. The noise stopped. Feeling a bit uncomfortable now, it was getting dark. With all the ancient superstitions of the night starting to crawl from the crannies of my soul, I looked back again. And this time I saw him, about fifty yards behind me, poised on a sandbar, one front paw still lifted and waiting, stood this big cat looking straight at me. I could see the gleam of the twilight in his eyes. I was startled as always by how small a cougar's head seems, but how long and lean and powerful the body really is. To me at that moment, he looked like the biggest cat in the world. He looked dangerous. Now I know very well that mountain lions are supposed almost never to attack human beings. I knew there was nothing to fear. But I couldn't help thinking maybe this lion is different from the others. Maybe he knows we're in a wildlife preserve where lions can get away with anything. I was not unarmed. I had my Swiss army knife in my pocket with the built-in can opener, the corkscrew, the two-inch folding blade, the screwdriver. Rationally, there was nothing to fear. All the same, I felt fear. And something else, too. I felt what I always feel when I meet a large animal face to face in the wild. I felt a kind of affection and the crazy desire to communicate, to make some kind of emotional, even physical contact with the animal. After we'd stared at each other for maybe five seconds, it seemed at the time like five minutes, I held out one hand and took a step toward the big cat and said something ridiculous like, Here, kitty, kitty. The cat paused there on three legs, one paw up as if he wanted to shake hands. 
but he did not respond to my advance. I took a second step toward the lion. Again the lion remained still, not moving a muscle, not blinking an eye. And I stopped and thought again, and this time I understood that however the big cat might secretly feel, I myself was not yet quite ready to shake hands with a mountain lion. Maybe some day, but not yet. I retreated. I turned and walked homeward again, pausing every few steps to look back over my shoulder. The cat had lowered his front paw, but did not follow me. The last I saw of him, from the next bend of the canyon, he was still in the same place, watching me go. I hurried on through the evening, stopping now and then to look and listen, but if that cat followed me any further, I could detect no sight or sound of it. I haven't seen a mountain lion since that evening, but the experience remains shining in my memory. I want my children to have the opportunity for that kind of experience, to have it. I want even our enemies to have it. They need it most. And some day, possibly, one of our children's children will discover how to get close enough to that mountain lion to shake paws with it, to embrace and caress it, maybe even teach it something, and to learn what the lion has to teach us. My wife and I live, for the moment, in a little house near the bright, doomed city of Tucson, Arizona. We like it here, most of the time. Our backyard includes a portion of the Sonoran Desert, extending from here to the California border and down into Mexico. Mesquite trees grow nearby, enough to supply fuel for the Franklin stove when the nights are cold, enough to cook the occasional pork chop or toast the tortilla, on the grill under the decaying Chinese elm. Out back is the dry creek bed, full of sand, called a wash in this country, winding through the trees and cactus toward the Tucson Mountains five miles away. We'll climb those hills yet, maybe. Rattlesnakes live in the rocky grottoes along the wash. Sometimes they come to the house for a social call. We found one coiled on the welcome mat by the front door Sunday evening. Our cat has disappeared. There are still a few bands of javelina, wild semi-pigs, out there. They come by at night, driving the dogs into hysterics of outrage, which the javelinas ignore. Coyotes howl at us when they feel like it, usually in the mornings and again around sundown, when I rile them some with my flute. They seem partial to green sleeves, played on the upper register. We have an elf owl living in a hole in the big saguaro cactus by the driveway, and three pygmy owls bobbing and weaving like boxers up in the palm at evening. There are pack rats in the woodpile and scorpions under the bark of the logs. I usually find one when I'm splitting firewood. So it's pretty nice here. We'd like to stay for a while, a lifetime or two, before trying something else. But we probably won't. We came down here from Utah four years ago for practical reasons, now satisfied. We are free to leave whenever we wish. The city remains at a comfortable distance. 
We hear the murmurs of it by day, when the wind is from the east, and see its campfires glow by night, those dying embers. The police helicopters circle like fireflies above Tucson, Arizona, all night long, maintaining order. The homicide rate hangs steady at 3.2 per diem per one million, including lowriders, dope peddlers, and defenseless winos. All is well. Eighteen Titan missile bases ring the city, guarding us from their enemies. The life expectancy of the average Tucsonan, therefore, is thirty minutes, or whatever it takes for an ICBM to shuttle from there to here. Everything is A-OK. -okay. We sleep good. Still, the city creeps closer day by day. While the two great contemporary empires are dying, one in Afghanistan and Poland, the other in Vietnam, Iran, Nicaragua, El Salvador. And though I welcome their defeat, their pain and fear make them more dangerous than ever. Like mortally wounded tyrannosaurs, they thrash about in frenzy, seeking enemies, destroying thousands of innocent lives with each blind spasm of reaction. And still the city creeps closer. I find a correlation in these movements. I foresee the day when we shall be obliged to strike camp once again. Where to this time? Home to Utah? Back to Appalachia? On to Australia? Down the river of eternal recurrence? It doesn't matter too much. There is no final escape, merely a series of tactical retreats, until we find the stone wall at our backs, bedrock beneath our feet. Ah, well, enough of this skulking rhetoric. Before we go, we will plant a tree. I cleared away some ragweed yesterday, dug a thigh-deep hole this morning, and planted a young budding cottonwood this afternoon. We soaked the hole with well water, mixed in the peat moss and the carefully set-aside topsoil, and lowered the root ball of the sapling into its new home. The tree shivered as I packed the earth around its base, a shiver of pleasure, a good omen. A few weeks of warm weather, and the little green leaves will be trembling in the sunlight. A few good years, and the tree will be shading the front porch and then the roof of the house, if the house is still here, if someone, or something, as I hope, is still enjoying this house, this place, this garden of rock and sand and Palo Verde, of sunshine and delight. We ourselves may never see this cottonwood reach maturity. Probably we'll never take pleasure in its shade or birds or witness the pale gold of its autumn leaves. But somebody will. Something will. In fifty years, Tucson will have shrunk back to what it once was, a town of adobe huts by the trickling Santa Cruz, a happier place than it is now, and our tree will be here, with or without us. In that anticipation, I find satisfaction enough. Canyon country of southern Utah and northern Arizona, the Colorado Plateau, is something special. 
something strange, marvelous, full of wonders. As far as I know, there's no other region on earth much like it, or even remotely like it. Nowhere else have we had this lucky combination of vast sedimentary rock formations exposed to a desert climate, a great plateau carved by major rivers, the Green, the San Juan, the Colorado, into such a surreal land of form and color. Add a few volcanoes, the standing necks of which can still be seen, and cinder cones and lava flows, and at least four separate lacolithic mountain ranges, nicely distributed about the region, and more hills, holes, humps, and hollows, reefs, folds, salt domes, swells, and grubbins, buttes, benches, and mesas, synclines, monoclines, and anticlines than you can ever hope to see and explore in one lifetime, and you begin to arrive at an approximate picture of the plateau's surface appearance. An approximate beginning, a picture framed by sky and time in the world of natural appearances. Despite the best efforts of a small army of writers, painters, photographers, scientists, explorers, Indians, cowboys, and wilderness guides, the landscape of the Colorado Plateau lies still beyond the reach of reasonable words or unreasonable representation. This is a landscape that has to be seen to be believed, and even then, confronted directly by the senses, it strains credulity. Comprehensible, yes. Perhaps nowhere is the basic structure of the Earth's surface so clearly, because so nakedly, revealed. And yet, when all we know about it is said and measured and tabulated, there remains something in the soul of the place, the spirit of the whole, that cannot be fully assimilated by the human imagination. My terminology is far from exact, certainly not scientific. Words like soul and spirit make vague substitutes for a hard effort toward understanding. But I can offer no better. The land here is like a great book or a great symphony. It invites approaches toward comprehension on many levels from all directions. The geologic approach is certainly primary and fundamental, underlying the attitude and outlook that best supports all others, including the insights of poetry and the wisdom of religion. Just as the earth itself forms the indispensable ground for the only kind of life we know, providing the sole sustenance of our minds and bodies, so does empirical truth constitute the foundation of higher truths, if there is such a thing as higher truth. It seems to me that Keats was wrong when he asked rhetorically, Do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? The word philosophy, standing in his day for what we now call physical science. But Keats was wrong, I say, because there is more charm in one mere fact, confirmed by test and observation, linked to other facts through coherent theory into a rational system, than in a whole brainful of fancy and fantasy, I see more poetry in a chunk of quartzite than in a make-believe wood nymph, more beauty in the revelations of a verifiable intellectual construction than in whole misty empires of obsolete mythology. The moral I labor toward is that a landscape as splendid as that of the Colorado Plateau can best be understood and given human significance 
by poets who have their feet planted in concrete, concrete data, and by scientists whose heads and hearts have not lost the capacity for wonder. Any good poet, in our age at least, must begin with the scientific view of the world, and any scientist worth listening to must be something of a poet, must possess the ability to communicate to the rest of us his sense of love and wonder at what his work discovers. The canyon country does not always inspire love. To many it appears barren, hostile, repellent, a fearsome land of rock and heat, sand dunes and quicksand, cactus, thornbush, scorpion, rattlesnake, and agoraphobic distances. To those who see our land in that manner, the best reply is, yes, you're right, it is a dangerous and terrible place. Enter at your own risk. Carry water. Avoid the noonday sun. Try to ignore the vultures. Pray frequently. For a few others, the canyon country is worth only what they can dig out of it and haul away, to the mills, to the power plants, to the bank. For more and more of those who now live here, however, the great plateau and its canyon wilderness is a treasure best enjoyed through the body and spirit, in situ, as the archaeologists say, not through commercial plunder. It is a regional, national, and international treasure too valuable to be sacrificed for temporary gain, too rare to be withheld from our children. For us, the wilderness and human emptiness of this land is not a source of fear, but the greatest of its attractions. We would guard and defend and save it as a place for all who wish to rediscover the nearly lost pleasures of adventure, adventure not only in the physical sense, but also mental, spiritual, moral, aesthetic, and intellectual adventure, a place for the free. Here you may yet find the elemental freedom to breathe deep of unpoisoned air, to experiment with solitude and stillness, to gaze through a hundred miles of untrammeled atmosphere, across red rock canyons, beyond blue mesas, toward the snow-covered peaks of the most distant mountains, to make the discovery of the self in its proud sufficiency, which is not isolation, but an irreplaceable part of the mystery of the whole. Come on in. The earth, like the sun, like the air, belongs to everyone and to no one. You've been listening to a program featuring the author, essayist, and anarchist Edward Abbey, reading from three of his works, The Journey Home, Down the River, and Abbey's Road. Thanks to Back of Beyond Books in Moab, Utah, for these recordings. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.